0: To Sports Talk, Doug Miles, Don Henderson with you, and uh, we're going to talk some tennis tonight, vintage tennis, if you will, where it all kind of began, or at least the uh, professional side began with uh, one of the original nine on the uh, WTA, the women's tour, is going to join us. She's written a great book about her life. It is called uh, Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey, One, and uh, we're joined today by uh, Julie Heldman, the great Julie Heldman from Mountain California, and Don, uh, I think we're going to have some fun talking some uh, tennis. You and I are big tennis guys, so uh, we'll enjoy this.
1: Well, yeah, I'll tell you, this weekend, this is a perfect time to have Julie on, and uh, her family is really the heritage of, uh, of tennis, and it'd uh, be very, very nice. We chatted with her just for a few seconds before we went on the air, and let me formally say, Julie, welcome to the show, and we are really looking forward to chatting with you.
2: Thanks to both of you, Doug and Don. I'm ready to talk uh, muscles and tennis, <laughs> Muscles because we weren't supposed to have muscles, but we did.
0: I'm glad, I, I'm glad I, I was able to uh, contact you, Julie, because uh, I could only—I tried going on the website for the book, and I sent you a message there, and then I sent one on uh, Facebook. So thank you for getting back to uh, to us here, and uh, we wanted to talk to you since the book came out. I know it's been out a little bit, but uh, still doing quite well, I understand, and uh, it's a great book. Uh, your life, really, from uh, beginning to now. Yeah, it
2: was in more than interesting for me to write it. It was something like it had to be written. It had to come out of me because I did. I've done a whole lot of things in my life, but some of the biggest issues in the book were my relationship with my very famous and highly successful mother. And it was a really a, a very difficult, it was a highly abusive relationship when I was young. Right. And then my living through the, the, the history of women's pro tennis where my mother was the person who organized... She was the architect and engineer of the beginning of the Women's Pro Tour. Without her, it wouldn't have happened. Of course, it also wouldn't have happened without Billy Jean King, and it also wouldn't have happened without our sponsor, the cigarette company, Virginia Slims. But I, I, um, the, the, the rest of the book, too, also deals with the fact that I've had to deal with a great deal of mental illness over the last 20, 30 years. Actually, for most of my life, I only got diagnosed... It, uh, 25 years ago. Right. So there's
1: a, it, it's a little bit for everyone in there. A little cathartic, yeah, uh, for you, I would assume, yeah. doing it. And when you talk about being a uh, dynamic, that's a very, very interesting story as a sidebar of the opening with Osaka and the problems that she had and the way they explained it during the tournament, the pressures and all the things that uh, nobody realized. That's what they did a terrific job doing one of the breaks and talking about the pressure that are on these women and uh, sometimes it's just a little bit overwhelming and no one would know more about that than you.
2: I I certainly lived that. Uh, Mine was quite different from most of the the tennis stories you hear because most of the tennis stories you hear have to do with the enormous risk of a parent being involved in in, uh, wanting the child to succeed so much that uh, the parent-child relationship becomes impacted. But there's a huge impact also. It's an interesting sidebar from what we did. We made it possible for the beginning of the Women's Pro Tour when the goal was to get money into women's tennis because there hadn't been. But now that there's so much money, there's an extra kind of a pressure that people don't really think about, which is that, the pressure to win, to succeed, overtakes any joy in playing. It all becomes about winning, and it all becomes every point is so important, so that if there's any kind of little problem that inside of you, that problem becomes uh, magnified on the tennis court, where you're out there alone, you know, where you're on the baseball field, you have your teammates. Same is true for basketball. Same is true for football. In, in tennis, you're really on your own. And if anything goes wrong, it's you who, who, who needs to deal with it, which brings up an awful a wonderful thing. you learn to rely on yourself when it counts. But at the same time, there's the problem of the pressure that mounts. And it isn't just women. I mean, Marty Fish in the last couple of years has, right. has admitted having had terrible anxiety problems, panic attacks, and as, as you know, in, in swimming and in gymnastics, that pressure is there, so that where in the old era, the era of amateurs, that just simply wasn't there, but now that the pressure's ramped up so much, it's a real issue throughout sports.
0: So I know down here, uh, Julie, uh, we've covered over the years, uh, you know, the IMG and and, uh, Nick Bollateri Academy and so many young, uh, particularly girls, have gone through that uh, program. They seem to start the girls a lot younger than the boys, or at least they they tend to push them (laughs) into the pro ranks uh, earlier than the boys. And uh, I guess that's a lot of the pressure. You hear the stories about, uh, you know, uh, what goes on there and not necessarily all bad, but, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on these, you know, little eight-, nine-year-old girls to – be so good so early, and that's kind of what you just talked about right there, right? That pressure can starts at such a young age, and you really can't handle it. Nobody should be able to handle it. Yeah, and
2: I think that you know, what is it that kids who are eight and nine like doing? They like going in the playground and playing jump rope and giggling. Right. And that part gets left out. So humans are social animals, as we have discovered during the pandemic, and so are little kids, and they need some of that. And there are some parents who have learned how to make that balance work, but it's hard to do. So I was saying that mine was so very different because usually a parent is so wrapped up in the children winning. My mother was not wrapped up in that. She was wrapped up in making the tennis world a better place for players and for the future and she had her own tennis magazine which she started at the age of 31 and made it into the world's most important tennis magazine and she became an incredible promoter but the kids my my sister and i kind of get left out in the mix and so that when i began winning tournaments when i was 12 i won the canadian national 18 and under and my mother i came home you know feeling full of myself and my mother said your hair is ugly cut it off that was about what i got it was like my winning became a threat to her
3: mm.
2: so that's incredibly different from the parent who is overly involved but equally as disturbing to the child without the child knowing because your parents are your life so i lived through a a, a world in which my mother was one of the most important people and yet she was abusive to me in a way that I could not understand and nor could she, frankly.
1: Well, do you, uh, Excuse me, I think that the young uh, folks that are listening right now are involved in mid 80s as well. Uh, you were so incredibly successful in so many areas. Not only were you successful in tennis and in the Hall of Fames and uh, that type of thing, but you also decided to go to law school. You were successful there. You graduated from Stanford. I mean, uh, there were a lot of things you uh, did during the course of growing up, and yet uh, bipolar has been uh, examined a lot more thoroughly in the last uh, maybe 15 years than it ever was before.
2: You're absolutely correct. Uh, um, In my junior year, I decided I wanted to do something different, so I went to Stanford in France, and while I was there at the age of 18, I suffered my first major depression and I had no idea why I was so unhappy. And the following year it was a whole lot worse. And there was no diagnosis back then. There was no therapy. There was no, there were no medicines. So what's happened in the last 20 years or so is a lot more medicines have come into the world. In fact, um, in the early 1970s, even when I was on the playing on the pro tour, there were no medicines, really. They're just beginning to have lithium coming in. Right. So what's happened is a, a major change. And another change is that now people are looking at, uh, sorry, there's enough knowledge out there about mental illness. That if somebody with my symptoms as I was um, suicidal and if if anybody had heard those symptoms back then they would have rushed they, they wouldn't have known what to do but now they would have rushed me to a psychiatrist and there was a possibility at least of getting help so there has to be a good diagnosis there has to be a good relationship it doesn't have to be it isn't that easy but with good help you can really get by and do well it took me a very very long time to do well uh, in fact, I had a breakdown that lasted 15 years, up until just a couple of years ago. Right. And and that had to do, in part, with how late it was, my diagnosis, and hard, how hard it was to deal with the changes I needed to make.
0: Well, I know, just so, from reading your book, Julie, uh, and, and you know listening to you in other interviews, and, and just... Talking to you tonight, you're you're doing uh, great work, uh, which uh, I don't know if you ever met her. Uh, The late, great uh, Patty Duke also uh, suffered from this, and she talked about it quite a bit in her later years. I think she was almost diagnosed, uh, maybe not as late as you were, but uh, as an adult before they finally got it under control. So uh, very few people talk about it because obviously it's not something people want to talk about, but thank you for doing that. But did you ever get a chance to talk to her when she was around about this at all?
2: I didn't. I don't think I was diagnosed by that time. But I didn't know her. But it is, I think, the honorable thing to do, which is to speak the truth. And if the truth says, uh, you know, I had serious problems, then it's important to say it. But, you know, when you're an athlete, and I'm sure when you're uh, an an actor of such renown as her, it's hard to say, I really need help. Yeah. But it's important to do because there are people out there and there is a way to get help. It doesn't have to be in any way the end of anything. There is, um, uh, you know, I was thinking about in the early years uh, um, there, uh, when there was, they used to be called manic depression by Kohler. And the only way out of it was they would do um, electroshock therapy, which was deeply frightening mm. and highly And um, that it doesn't happen anymore. There's a fear, also the fear that, of saying I have a mental illness. Thank heavens, people are talking about that more because it doesn't have to be fearful. In part because there are ways out, but some of it has to do with there's just so many modern drugs. But let's be very clear about medicines: they give and they take. There are wonders and there's downside, and it's hard to get the right diagnosis. If you have a broken back. You can get an MRI. If your brain isn't working well, you have to talk to somebody about it and you have to say what's going wrong when you're not even sure what's going wrong. Right. So it's very important to do your best to, to talk to anybody, frankly, and say, I don't feel right. But I, I think it's, it's an important thing to know that nobody's going to think that you're foolish or wrong or bad because you don't feel well. You can get help.
1: Julie, let's go back to the basics for just a moment because we're starting off with tennis and uh, your relationship with your mom and how you, you just mentioned uh, winning your first tournament at 12 in Canada. <clears throat> but at the same time, uh, your mom was also a promoter for World Team Tennis. This is a big part of your life as well as working with Bud Collins, and we'll get to Bud in just a moment. But uh, mm-hmm. your mom was very much involved. She wanted uh, World Team Tennis to be very successful.
2: Well, actually, it was um, it was women's tennis, the world of, of uh, women's tennis. My mother started promoting when she was in her 30s do, just to do good for some of the tournaments when they were failing, when they were amateur tournaments. So when it came time for professional tennis to come around, that happened in 1968. It used to be that only the amateurs had the big tournaments, right. like the, the U.S. Open, Wimbledon, those. They were all for amateurs. But in 1968... The the world of tennis changed, and they said you could have open tennis, which meant tournaments that were open to both professionals and amateurs. And as soon as that happened, instead of having tournaments for both men and women, almost all the money went to the men, and the women started to be left out. And within two years after that, there were many weeks where there were no tournaments, and there came a crisis time, and it came in September of 1970 when there was a tournament in Los Angeles, a famous old tournament called the Pacific South Red West that had been around for years in front of the Hollywood elite. And Jack Kramer, the famous pro at that time, was running the tournament, and he had the prize money ratio of eight to one men to women. (laughs) And the women pros began to stand up and say, that's just not right. We can't do that. So they went to my mother. Three of the top women in the world went to my mother and said, please help so she decided to start a tournament in Houston, Texas, where she was about to move. And that tournament was to be for women only, and the prize money would be far better than it was in Houston. It would only get room for eight players, but it was a way to get started. The night before the tournament was to start, even though Jack Kramer had agreed there was no problem having a tournament at the same time, the night before the tournament to start, all hell broke loose. And the men who were running the United States Lawn Tennis Association at that time started calling the women players and saying, if you compete in Houston, you'll be suspended. You won't be able to play in Wimbledon. You won't be able to play at the U.S. And the, my mother got on the phone with all of them and said, come on down to Houston. I'll pay your airfare if it needs to be, but we're going to make this happen.
3: Mm.
2: And the day the tournament was to start, it became a, a standoff where the men who were running the associations said the women, you can only play if it's an amateur event. Notice they didn't say that to the men. They only said it to the women. So the women agreed that they would—they needed to be protected. So my mother signed them all as contract pros for the princely sum of $1. <laughs> the, po- the point was we to protect them from the association and they could be protected if they were under contract with her. And she also announced in that very first meeting that Virginia Slims would be a sponsor, a Fortune 500 company owned by Philip Morris. Virginia Slims was a women's cigarette, and it was about running out of time to be able to uh, advertise on TV because in September of of the following year, cigarette advertising wasn't allowed. So they had money looking for a place to roost. So there we were in the perfect place at the perfect time, with a great promoter, a great star in Billie Jean King, seven players in the world's top ten, and a a Fortune 500 company behind us. And it was uh, something that worked incredibly. The nine women who signed with her, and I was one, became known as the original nine, the nine who stood up against the men's association. My mother ran the tour for its first three years. She was a pr- pr- promoter extraordinaire, and she also didn't take any crap, and the USLC <laughs> threw a lot of that at her, and at us, and eventually, she was the kind of person who was the entrepreneur who doesn't stay around to become the organization person, and the WTA got started by Billie Jean King in 73, so from 70 to 70, the end of 73, my mother ran the tour. After that it became run, it was run by the WTA. But without her, it wouldn't have happened with her contacts, her work ethic. With her, it got an incredible start. And that's how the women's Pro tour got started.
0: I should say before the before, before go ahead, Don.
1: Thing. she stuck right with it and was willing to take the crap to start with. That takes a lot of courage. Doug, go
0: ahead. I was just going to say, uh, Julie just got inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in July uh, as part of the original nine. So we want to congratulate you on that, Julie. I know that just happened uh, a couple of months ago.
2: I'm totally thrilled. It's the greatest honor in tennis. Yeah, it would have been great if I would have been just good enough to be inducted as a player, but I wasn't. But in many ways, this is more important. We did something that started the world of professional tennis and professional sports in so many ways. Right after us came Title IX, and the changes in women became amazing. When I was growing up, being feminine meant being submissive. Right now, somebody call you submissive. You get a, you get a, a, a punch in the jaw. <laughs> <laughs> but the world has changed dramatically, and I'm quite thrilled to say we were part of that.
0: Well, that was kind of the well, era. Absolutely right about Title
1: IX. Title IX it's, uh, it's made the young women because now the colleges have to uh, adhere to Title Nine. The high schools do. Uh, You've got to put equal money in there and, and give everybody the opportunity. I uh, guess the only thing that uh, separates is football because there's so many players involved as opposed to the other sports. But I say to all the young ladies that I talk to, uh, you know, if you're a cross player or if you're a tennis player or if, no matter what you may be, a swimmer, uh, you're going to get an immediate acceptance in college uh, with a scholarship. You're really good because they have to fill the spot. It, it, it's
2: true, and it brought a, a, a kind of a really – the Title IX has brought a wonderful kind of competition because the sport, particularly in tennis, they are now teams. When I went to Stanford, I, I went there thinking there'd be some good players out there because I knew there were a couple of at Stanford. I get there, they had left. There was no team. There was no coach. There was no place to play. I used to go to the local courts, stand at the gate and see if anybody would practice with me. <laughs> it was so different from now. Now there's training, there's in the gym, there's on the court, there are coaches who are knowledgeable. In my era, it was sort of go out, hold the racket, swing, see if it works. So <laughs> now it's a lot of um, scientific knowledge about what does work and plus the equipment is so entirely different but uh, it, title nine has made a huge difference
0: I know you talked before about uh virginia Slims being the initial sponsor and uh, you talk in the book about it uh, the controversy uh over that but uh, obviously you know the sponsorship you needed at the time but i remember covering tennis uh, started covering it in college uh, radio uh, when they had the avon was the main sponsor. You had some tournaments around and at Madison Square Garden. I grew up in New York, so I got to cover some of those. So I guess, that was a better sponsor for you, I guess, ultimately.
2: right? Well, you're right. Avon did come in there for a while. Virginia Slims, you know, I like to say, and I believe it's true, we went to, the, we, the, to get the tour started. We went to bed with the devil and the devil saved us. Mm. Without that kind of money, it wasn't going to happen no matter how many great players they were. So it was... It, it, amazingly good, but I had my own issues with um, having a cigarette company as a sponsor. Note, I didn't stand up and say, go away, I won't play. I said, okay, I'm not going to wear any clothing that advertises cigarettes on it, and right. other people didn't have that concern. I did. I thought that that was, that that was where I took my stand. But, you know, I was an asthmatic. I could never smoke. I, my father was taken to a an oxygen tent when I was young and told never to smoke. And so both my sister and I learned very early. But in that era, you have to remember, in the, certainly when I was growing up the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was the era of the, of the Mad Men show, what oh, sure. everybody smoked and drank all the time. It, it was just normal. It was what happened. And now we realize just how harmful it is.
1: Well, of course, having uh, I mean, grown up in the Philadelphia area and worked in Philadelphia all my life, uh, we lost a couple of good tournaments. Uh, you know, the U- U.S. Yeah. Pro uh, in Philadelphia. The her- I don't know if you know the Hirschburgers uh, or Frenberger. not. But, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, she 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 put her life into that tournament. Unfortunately, it, uh, at that time, nobody really traveled to Australia for the Australian because it was too far away. And uh, her tournament was always uh, about the same time. And its transportation became so much easier. And all the players, uh, you know, went to Australia for the Australian Open. And Philadelphia lost their tournament. And Marilyn and Ed uh, uh, hernberger they, uh, they they lost the tournament, which they really developed from St. Joe College with about 20 players, uh, maybe 15 years ahead of time.
2: Yeah, they were incredible entrepreneurs in the early years of the of the pro tour. Marilyn 1st really? was unstoppable. I remember I was playing in Europe once, and I'd been doing really well, and I had a boyfriend, and we went off without telling anybody where we were going to some <laughs> hotel in Denmark. And damn it, the phone in my room didn't ring. And she had bribed the concierge at the previous place to find out where I went. <laughs> it, was, it was unstoppable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a few months ago, Julie, we had a, a man on wrote a book about really the in depth history of the world team tennis, and uh, just kind of do some research on it myself. I found a lot of video on uh, YouTube of you doing some of those uh, HBO broadcasts, and let's get into the broadcasting end that uh, you, you branched out into uh, while you were playing, and of course afterward, you did some CBS, and of course NBC, and then. Uh, the hbo and and you really were a, a pioneer uh for women's broadcasting of tennis as well so that must have been a wild time
2: yeah it was it was uh, as uh, the, the, the tail end of my career was coming up i decided to start going in the direction of doing broadcasting as you can tell i kind of like to talk
3: and we, we like I that
2: went, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> i bet you guys you and i have something in common right but um <laughs> I decided to, to try it out. I literally stood at the door of the broadcast uh, truck in Hilton Head, uh, South Carolina, and I said, I want to do this broadcast. And I talked to people, and, and they said, oh, well, we actually want Billy really Jin King. And they said, okay. I said, okay. But they said, well, just in case she doesn't agree, why don't you go get your hair done? That, that's how close it is. So I went and got my, I got, one, got my hair done. They said, oh, she doesn't want to do it, so you can do the broadcast. And those were the kind of ways that I started. I just wanted it more than most people, and I was willing to go to any length to do it. There was one stage when I I did the broadcast. It was the the second time I did the Hilton Head broadcast, and then it was uh, I went off to play in the Federation Cup, playing number one for the U.S. in the south of France, and then I flew back to New York to do the voiceover. Of the, of the broadcast when they cut the tape down, and then I flew off to uh, to Italy to do to sit at the broadcast door and to do the Italian Open. It was you know it, it was wild and woolly in some of the times, but yes, I was a pioneer. There was NBC uh, ran a tournament which was a very interesting kind of tournament from the Big Island of Hawaii, and it was a right. tournament yeah. that one one match a week a total of 10 weeks and i did it with the great bud collins and we would go over there we'd do a couple of weeks in a row and then we'd come back and do something else and go out for another couple of weeks hold on excuse me and it, it was i was the first woman to broadcast men's tennis and now we don't think of that as much as the doors have opened but those doors were not particularly open when i went and sat on people's doors and eventually got a most wonderful agent opened some of those doors for me too. Yes, I did Wimbledon, the French, the U S open, the Italian open. I did that tournament in, in Hawaii. I did team tennis. Uh, I, I did, I did a whole lot for a couple of years. And when it looked like those doors were no longer opening, I went to law school. So that, that was It's it, it,
1: it, it, Interesting. When you talk about that, because it's going full circle, when you think? And, uh, this weekend over in, in New York, uh, Flushing, you know, the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. I mean, it's, it's not a man, it's a, it's a woman that's created the uh, Billie Jean King Tennis Center. And of course, uh, you mentioned Billie a little bit earlier, in her team, when World Team Tennis was in fact in Vogue, she uh, was in Philadelphia. So I saw a lot of, uh, I saw a lot of the uh, World Team Tennis, and I saw a lot of Billie Jean in, in, in fact, a good buddy of mine did most of the television but one of the television stations in Philadelphia because they had a contract to uh, do the uh, the team tennis. So, mm-hmm. what well, when you talk about uh, going full circle, going from almost nothing to being the the front line name on the world on the tennis scene in New York City is just unbelievable.
2: Yeah, and you know, uh, Billie Jean King is one of the most famous and recognizable women in the world. And a lot of that had to do with the Women's Pro Tour, but a lot of it had to do with her own guts and uh, that famous, famous match against Bobby Riggs, which I don't know how much people know about that now, but back in 1973, an older guy, he was 50, said that he could beat any woman anywhere, and he proceeded to go out and beat the number one in the world at that time, who was Margaret Court.
3: Right.
2: And Billie Jean King had previously said she wouldn't play him, but when Margaret Court lost to him, she decided she had to. And it became one of the biggest deals in the history of tennis with that They say there were 90 million people watching it worldwide, and in the Houston Astrodope, there was a good 35,000 people there sitting there watching it, and Everybody in the country, it seen. took sides. There were either four women or four men, and it was crazy. It was lunatic. But she stood up, and she she played a great match, and, and she was fitter than he was, and she was stronger than he was. And she might have been only nearly 30, but he was in his 50s, and she was better than he was. And yet that was such a big deal that she became one of the most famous people, and she's become an advocate for a number of issues, women's rights, gay rights, and other things. And I think that she's shown herself to be quite a public figure. But I, I think that um, it, it is interesting that women can now run things as well as men sometimes. People say
3: better. But uh, <laughs> it, it does In many cases, that. they
0: do. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: You know, you're up there. Go, go
0: ahead. I was going to say, you, you talk about working with Bud Collins. We had a chance to uh, have him on a few times when he would come down at the colony here in Sarasota and uh, really a great guy. And you talk about in the book, working with him. Uh, I believe you really enjoyed doing the broadcasts uh, together. He was a, a unique character on the air, a very talented writer, but he really kind of revolutionized the way tennis should be done as you have Julie uh, on the air. You, you really kind of, Brought the personalities out as opposed to just, uh, you know, just say, oh, good forehand, good backhand. Uh, you both of you brought uh, something new to the broadcast of tennis.
2: Well, thank you for comparing me to Bud. Bud was unique. He was determined to have fun with it and to bring fun to everybody, not to get too serious about things, while being incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, he's famous for having written the Encyclopedia of Tennis, literally. But he was also. I don't know if people know, just one of those incredibly good people who helped others. It, the, the, new, the newbies who were new as journalists and, or broadcasters would come to a tournament and Bud would give them a helping hand so long as he got his scoop. But he was just generally well-known and he died a couple of years ago and we all miss him, but he certainly was one of good people.
1: Couple of interesting factors. Uh, one, you talk about Bud and, and, and tennis because he was really the heart and soul, too. He wrote the tennis all the way along the line. Uh, yeah. But major story in, in the New York Post is I don't, I can't remember whether it was yesterday or Saturday, but uh, they're becoming fearful. And I, it comes to my mind because my mother graduated from college in 1926. So uh, I, I was fully aware of how significant it was for her to be a college graduate in 1926 compared to 99% of the women in the world. And uh, so I I look back at that and and think of how fortunate she was and how fortunate we were that uh, she was that far ahead of her time. And uh, uh, so you're you're absolutely right. Uh, In the article in the Post, they're more fearful now that more women are graduating from college than men. And uh, maybe uh, it's really gonna be a total transition Uh, in the country as far as leadership is concerned, because most of the women are the ones that are graduating now from colleges and universities. I think it's a matter
2: of being hungry. I mean, a lot of the great women tennis players now are coming from Eastern Europe where their way out of some kind of a poverty uh, is is to to go towards tennis. And I think women have in many ways at the moment are soaring in in a number of, of areas because they want right. to do it more. And I think that that, probably, that pendulum will probably swing back in, the, in another direction, so there'll be more like equality. But I think that the hunger, the, what, how much effort you put into being uh, a good student when you're a kid or when you're in high school, pays a, a big price. You, you, it, it pays you back in many ways later as you grow up as your mind grows and your ability to study and to learn about the world. I also think, however, that there's still a glass ceiling in a lot of professions in being in, 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 the legal profession, there still aren't as anywhere near as many women at towards the top of the profession as there are men. There are lots of them, but nowhere near. And some of it has to do with women wanting to have a more balanced life of, of having a family and a legal career, and that's very difficult. I love the story. People say, you know, oh, you're working part-time, just nine to five, five days a week, because the legal profession can can really eat you up. But there are other professions, too. You look on the boards of directors of Fortune 500 companies, and you look in other areas, as in, in the scientific areas and this and that, there's still a big gap. There's a gap in the older people and the younger ones coming up some of that's going to change, but I think it'll swing around because there's no reason why both women and men can't succeed.
0: Julie, so, before, before we wrap up, I just want to mention the book once again Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey is the full title of the book and Julie Heldman has been with us and Julie, you sound, uh, you sound great, you sound healthy. Uh, from reading the book it sounds like you're doing well. I know it's a kind of a daily thing with what you're, you're dealing with the bipolar, but uh, once they get the, the dosages correct I guess it's pretty manageable, right?
2: It's manageable and it takes a lot of work, but it's worth it. It's worth it to keep trying. I've been lucky enough to get a really good group of people. And yes, I'm doing far better than I've ever done at any time in my life, including my 20s, 30s. I'm 75 years old and the world is opening up for me because I don't suffer the way I used to. So just know that there's a chance out there for everybody to get well.
1: That's great. Well, I was very happy to see at the tournament uh, where the weekend uh, Virginia Wade was introduced, uh, and and I hadn't seen her in years and years and years, uh, but she she was recognized, which I thought was very, very nice. And uh, I just thought it was a tremendous two weeks, and I can't say enough about Fernandez and and what she did and and the championship match. I'll tell you, I, I thought it was just terrific, terrific tennis, but more importantly, I thought there were two great personalities for those two young ladies on Saturday.
2: It's it's very hopeful to see these two young ones. You know, for a while there, people say, oh, tennis is such a different sport now. You have to hit that hard. You can't be that good when you're young. And they're showing you'd be quite wrong that you can be good and and that, these two wonderful young people. As a matter of fact, Virginia Wade must be pretty darn happy that a Brit won. <laughs> That's
0: right. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Because all the years that she, all the years that we saw her, she would get to the quarterfinals or the 75 but never got to the gold gate. Not until
2: she won Wimbledon in its centenary year, and the and the Brits went ape. That's and right. Were, <laughs>
1: yeah. Our
2: city wins.
3: <laughs> they have no
1: reason. And Murray recently, well, I say recently, what, 10 years ago, but uh, so that was their second claim to fame when he won.
2: Yeah, when Andy Murray. Andy Murray, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, and the Brit, uh, uh took him in as one of ours, even though the English didn't really want Technically to. Technically, he's down Irish, away. right? Yeah, he was,
0: he was born in Ireland, I believe, or Scotland. Yeah. Got <laughs> <That> it. <is>, yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned quickly before we before we let you go that just the power of the game, uh, particularly on the women's side. You watch it now; yep. they got to be hitting it at least 20, 25 percent harder than 30 years ago. Are they hitting it harder, or is it just the equipment? It seems like it's a harder hit ball today.
2: It is, it, it is, it is. They are hitting much harder, and it's possible because of the equipment. Yeah. Which is not just the rackets with your high technology metals, and but it's also the strings. And the strings provide the ability to hit with a lot of spin. So they learn the, a technique that's very different from the way we learned it, and they learn to come under, over, and around the ball. And you have to follow through. In our era, you could poke at it right. some of the times if they poke at it it can come back at 50 miles an hour so it's just there's just a, that much so in order to be able to keep up with that kind of power shot after shot point after point they have to be extraordinarily fit and they have to have the right technique and they have the right people around them it's really hard to do and you know you look at back at i look back at what i look at and i cringe at what, at what i looked like <laughs> and i cringe it looks like kind of like pity pat it wasn't Pity Pet, but compared to what they're doing now, it's just like another
1: world.
0: Yeah, I try and do that over-under thing, but I can't quite get it. I was taught the low to high, but you can't do that with the new rackets. You've got you got to do that kind of wrist thing where you put the extra topspin on it. But I'm working on it. By <laughs> <laughs> these women, they're, they're hitting the heck out of that thing. I don't know how anybody can return it.
2: <laughs> I think it's also, some of it is you get the rhythm of it. You yeah. watch them play stuff. And they, they watch the ball coming off the racket. You know, you remember all those years people said, watch the ball. Right. Well, it's the, it's the sound and the vision of it. You begin to see really early on if it's going left, if it's going right, if it's going short, if it's going long. And surprise is such a big deal now because, because if you're not, if you're, you're not in the rhythm of getting a long ball every time, all of a sudden there's a short ball, you have to run like a, a son of a gun. It, it, it so that, Interestingly enough, things do come around, and for a couple of years in the early uh, uh, 2000s, everybody was just hitting the cover off the ball. And now, some of the best players are doing everything. A lot of drop shots uh, now.
0: Yeah, uh, they go to a drop a shot, shot all of a sudden. Drop. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and and the slice thing has come in, and the way they're slicing it's 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 it kind of. I played a kind of uh, ball that I called I called myself junk ball.
3: I was
0: just going to mention everything. that I, I do the same thing. <laughs> Not as good, obviously, but I like throwing junk every once in a while. It works.
2: Yeah, and, you know, it makes the other person get cranky, and you want them to get cranky,
0: That's right? it. Yeah. Don, I'll let you wrap yeah, it up.
1: Well, let me ask you, yes, Julie, and, and that would be, I you noticed that uh, during the course of the matches, uh, most of the women now are serving somewhere between oh, 87 and 94, 93 miles an hour. Uh What was it in your day? I I I got to think back when uh, I was watching them play. We didn't have any. Obviously, we didn't have guns there to see how fast when served to give you an idea. How how fast did in fact you serve in your day?
2: I I would say that if Virginia Wade were playing now with today's equipment, she'd be serving between one hundred and five and one hundred and fifty. Yeah, she
0: had a good one. But we had
2: we had rackets that couldn't wouldn't do that. You know, there were other things. My serve was right. so awesome. It was like 33 miles an hour, and it stopped cold. <laughs> it was my weakness.
0: But you placed it well. <laughs> you, you, you could place it, and you didn't double fault. I, so that was the key. Yeah.
2: I, I didn't double fault much, and yeah. I placed it well. Yeah. But I sure would have done even better had I had a better serve. But I had a coach who thought that a, a kid shouldn't start serving overhand until she was good enough to win 11 and under tournaments. Yeah. So I, I lost all those early years of learning the technique and getting the power of serving. It was, it was crazy situation.
0: Yeah, I see kids where I play, uh, they have these uh, like academy there and you see like nine, 10 year olds. They're hitting it. it looks like they're hitting it about hundred miles an hour on a serve. So it's amazing yeah. what they can teach them. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, what I've seen when I'm hearing some of the young players talking, with the joy they get from hitting the cover off the ball. And so that when it comes back to um, learning to, to put variety in, it's something they, they have to be taught. You have to be carefully taught.
0: Yeah. Donald, you wrap it up. Well, in baseball, they say they
1: changed the ball so much because uh, the home runs and the travel of the ball. I've been in tennis. Have they changed the uh, the actual ball itself uh, to accommodate today's game?
2: The ball hasn't changed
1: much. What has
2: changed is the court. The last person to win the Grand Slam and the only man to win the Grand Slam and twice was Rod Laver. And three of the four majors were played on grass. So everybody, all the men, had to hit and run to the net. It was called chip and charge. Get mm-hmm. right in. So now there's uh, one of the majors is on clay, the French. One's on grass, sort of. It's such different grass, it's almost not the same thing. And two of them are on the hard courts, and one is a slow hard court, and one's a pass hard court. So there's a big, big difference in the courts. And there's a lot of indoors where there weren't in the in the old days. But the ball is generally the same, though the European ball used to be incredibly different from the American ball. The Dunlop ball, the Pirelli ball in Italy was this soft old thing playing on slow red play courts and um so there's, there's been an awful lot of changes but not so much in the ball as far as i know
0: don i'll let you wrap it up
1: no well i just just want to congratulate you on what you accomplished in not only tennis but also uh, addressing the problems that a lot of people face that are afraid to discuss and i, I just think that's uh so very very good about you and, and Coming out with the book, there are a lot of young women or not only young women, a lot of people uh, that just haven't had the opportunity to get the kind of uh, medical attention that you have. And I, I just hope this will open their eyes to a lot more of it. And as I mentioned, they, they really emphasized that during the opening this last week. Uh, you know, make sure that you address your problems. And, and, and I think you addressed it very well.
2: And thank you. And I really appreciate you saying that. And, you know, and the other thing is to let's take the toxicity out of it. Yeah, I feel lousy. Let me get help.
0: Driven, A Daughter's Odyssey is the title, and Julie Heldman has been with us. And you can go to just, uh, your website, Julie. I guess it's available to all the other book sites as well, right?
2: On Amazon, you can get it. And I, I also did the audiobook.
0: Oh, great. Yeah. You can, you can almost just hear your voice available. when I was reading it. So that, that'll be great uh, for people to get. Julie, real pleasure talking to you. Hopefully, we can do it again, maybe later in the year when. Uh, You know, the Australian Open or something as you're available, but uh, love talking to you. I know we kept you longer than we said, but uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for being with us.
2: I got to tell you, this has been a great pleasure. Thanks to both of you, Don, and a real pleasure.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Great. Thank you.